0: Well, hey, good morning. Uh, so glad that everybody is here with us. Um, and a real quick special shout out. Where, uh, where is he? Where are you, Mr. Shine? Where you at? There you are. Oh, and Deneen's here. Okay, so we got some of the, so I, I teach at uh, Newman Middle School in SkyTech. And if, you, uh, if you're praying for me, you definitely need to pray uh, for this guy. This is my principal uh, and boss, uh, Mr. Shine. Give it up for this guy. And he's here with his wife and his kids, uh, one of them who I had in class last year, so now she has a new favorite teacher. Uh, And then down here, this is Coach Deneen. Coach Deneen in the house. He's been teaching since like the late 70s. But uh, I'm telling you, he just—he sets the bar so high, he makes everybody else look bad at, at uh, Newman Middle School. Bad at something, I don't know. Um, but I'm really excited that those guys are here. Well, as, uh, as Jim said, you know, I, I am a teacher, and so the summer months for teachers can be kind of peculiar. Most years, it's in the summer months that I run my carpentry business uh, solely for just like disposable income because I make plenty uh, during the year as a teacher. Um, No, I'm serious. Like, I wish that you as taxpayers would actually pay less. Um, At times, it's just like, taxpayers, this is too much. Okay, stop. Okay, getting a little embarrassing. Okay, so, uh, but I, I run... A carpentry business. I coach junior high baseball. You know, spend time with the kids. Go to drillers' games. Stay up later than I should because I don't have to be in. Sky I took it six thirty in the morning. But this summer has been a lot different. In fact, it's been a lot more challenging. Uh, my wife Gloria, who's uh, right there, she's a nurse and she's working on becoming a nurse practitioner. So she's in grad school. And yeah, give it up. That's right. Dr. Quinn, medicine woman. There you go, babe. Love you. So she's working on becoming a nurse practitioner. She's working two jobs currently, plus, we have three kids. And so she has zilch time. And so this summer, I've really had to do a lot more to support her, uh, just with her being really busy with school and work and things like that. So I'm helping out at home and I'm helping out with the kids. Uh, so I've been doing this summer especially a lot more uh, child transporting and diaper changing and peanut butter and honey sandwich making and uh, trying not to allow too much TV watching and allowing too much TV watching and clothes washing and dishwashing and, and child washing and child pajama-ing and the uh, therapeutic late night carpentry-ing. Now. Real quick, before I get like pelted with like rotten produce by stay at home moms who are like, Excuse me? Did I hear a complaint in there about your summer? Oh, I'm sorry, you're inconvenienced. (laughs) You're describing my everyday, brother. So, real quick, let me just acknowledge that there are numerous men and women in this room and all around the world who I just described their everyday. In fact, for the last five years, I've coached high school baseball. And so for three months in the spring, you know, that's Gloria's existence. I'm gone four or five nights a week. I mean, she's basically a a single parent doing everything. So I wanna acknowledge that. And it's not just single moms. uh, It's not just stay-at-home moms and dads, okay, who are having this experience. In fact, if we can just you know be on the same level here i think many of us would acknowledge that we struggle with those seasons where what we do day in and day out it feels mundane it feels seemingly insignificant it feels ordinary it feels thankless probably because it is and i'll be honest i've really struggled this summer i mean let me just be truthful, I've been like depressed, okay, because I have a hard time with the mundane parts of life. And again, so that we are on level ground here, can we acknowledge that most of us feel this way a lot during our lives? We you just give me a show of hands so I'm not alone? How many of you, would say, you know what, there are mundane days, months, seasons, years where, man, it just feels so ordinary and seemingly insignificant, and the same day in and day out. In fact, if we're honest, we'll acknowledge that between the rare and those few monumental, mountaintop, earth-shattering experiences of life, most of our days are made up of getting ourselves and miniature versions of ourselves dressed, fed, and transported somewhere. We work jobs that we may or may not be passionate about, in which we may or may not be thanked for, for providing a public service, all so that we can provide for ourselves and our families. We go to the store, we get a loan in order to buy gas, we cook dinner, you got it, there you go. Okay, not a political statement, just let's be united here, okay? We cook dinner, we do laundry, we clean and vacuum, we mow the lawn, we pay bills, we pay taxes, we pay our children to behave. Sometimes it works, okay, I'm just saying. Okay, think outside the box. We attend church. We serve in ministries. We give out of faithfulness. We care for family members and friends. We teach our children to be like Jesus, even though they'd rather climb on us, like jungle gyms at that very moment. We bathe, we clothe, and we put to bed those said children before we ourselves go to bed exhausted and tired and get up the next morning and do it all over again. Thanks for coming to see church. Let's pray. Aren't you so glad? You came here this morning, you're like, man, it's the summer. They got like bottled sodas out there. This is going to be like such a chipper message. I'm going to be like leaping when I get out of here and I'm here. I'm just like, doesn't every day feel like the same? Are you tired? Are you depressed? Here is Jesus. Okay, so, but hang in there with me. On a serious note. If we're honest, I think we all struggle with the disconnect between our dreams, our expectations, and the reality of everyday life. We struggle with the mundaneness of life, and we wonder, what is God doing in the seemingly ordinary, insignificant, mundane days, seasons, or years of our lives? We ask, have I missed something? in this great eternity-altering call to follow Christ. Because my life doesn't read like an action-packed biography of a world changer. And I think if we're truly honest, we ask this question, am I a bad Christian? Because sometimes I want more out of life. And it was while asking these questions and, and preparing to talk about that, this morning I stumbled upon, or, or rather God directed me to a short, powerful book by a man named Matthew Redmond called The God of the Mundane, and you'll, you'll see a picture of it here in a moment. And as I read it this week, that's how short it is, it was as if it was written directly to me, and I believe it has some very practical implications for each and every one of us here this morning. I commend it to you to read in full. It is, it's a very short read. And I leaned heavily on it this morning, as you'll see, as I'll be using several quotes from Redmond. And I'll let you in on a little secret. All pastors and speakers borrow material, but the honest ones tell you that, okay? <laughs> Except for Pastor Matt. He doesn't. It's like scripture, his thoughts. That's it. It's all his sermons are. Everything's original. And trademarked, by the way. Now, in the book, Redmond gives this insight, which serves as a sort of thesis of his work. He says this Christians are not immune to the problem of being mundane and seeing it as a problem. We have breathed in the same fumes as the rest. Our hearts burn for our deeds to be noticed and celebrated. We want to do something big and have it thrust into cyberspace for all to experience. Those who follow the man of no reputation pine for one, resumes at the ready. We think the small, mundane, ordinary things we do each and every day are worth nothing before God because they are worth nothing before the gods of this world. And if this statement resonates with you as it does with me this morning, I wanna ask three questions for us as we wrestle through this issue. One, whose example are we following What story are we believing and what are we willing to be? The first one, whose example are we following? As Christians, we know that Christ is our ultimate example. He tells his disciples that just as I have loved you, so you should love one another. Paul, Peter, and John in their letters told their audiences to imitate Christ, to follow in Jesus' steps and to walk in the same way in which he walked. We understand this very clearly, that as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, we ought to be imitating Jesus. So let us consider then this passage from Philippians as Paul writes to the church at Philippi in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. He says this, "'Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion,' Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And I feel like he gets to this point where he's describing the kind of attitudes and lifestyle we should have, and he sort of uh, just says, okay, you know what, let's just look at Jesus, And he says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. The King James Version says he made himself of no reputation by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I think if we're honest, we really like to hone in on verses nine through 11. We see the part about Jesus being exalted, being given a name that is above every other name, that every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess. We like that part because we like that part of life. We like when we're exalted, when we have a following, when we have many eyes upon us, when we're praised, when we're glorified for the things that we do and that we like and that we say but there's a very important word in this chapter. I think it's the most important word, and it's at the very beginning of verse nine. It's the word therefore. Now, therefore means because of everything I've just now said, this next part is true. You hit your brother, therefore you will be punished, okay? Therefore links the proceeding to the proceeding. And it's therefore that is important in this verse. It's because Jesus humbled himself, made himself of no reputation, came, as he said, to serve and not to be served, and willingly gave up his innocent life for the sake of guilty sinners that he was then, and therefore exalted, and given the name that is above all names. Consider how Christ acted when he was being charged as a criminal before the high priest and then before Herod and then Pilate. In Matthew 27, 11 through 14, it says, meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, a man named Pontius Pilate, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing about you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, how many of you can stand in this place and say that that would be your response if you were being charged with crimes that carried with them the punishment of death? How many of you would stand silent as you allowed Charge after charge, witnesses that were lying about you, saying all kinds of wrongful things about you, knowing very well that they're wrong, knowing very well that you have the power to get rid and get out of this situation, but you remain silent. I don't even like to take the heat when I knowingly do the wrong thing, for crying out loud, okay? I mean, it's like, hey, did you do this? Yes, but I wasn't the only one. I didn't start the argument. I wasn't going to let him talk to me that way. I did it for the right reasons. I thought five-year-olds were tougher than that. (laughs) These are all hypothetical, by the way. Hypothetical, not taken from anyone's life. The example set before us by our culture is to deflect blame point out all the faults in others, defend our motives and protect our reputation at all costs. And if you say, nah, I don't know that that's true, turn on the news for five seconds and let any politician be interviewed about why something isn't happening and you'll see what I mean. It's always someone else's fault. And yet here is Jesus, the maker and ruler of all things, the holy and anointed one, silent, Redmond again states in the book, the world around us is formed by celebrity and self promotion. We are anxious to tell everyone what we love, what we are fans of, what we have done, and what we will be doing, not to mention who we know. And the louder we are, the more others hear and know. This quiet life is not a monk's venture, it's not silence. I think more than anything, it's the resolve to be okay with not being heard or seen or noticed. It is grounded in the assurance that the creator notices and sees and hears. The quiet life, just like the mundane life, is not weak. It is the strength of the lamb who stood silent before his slaughterers. The example of Christ is not one of cowardice or compromise or timidity. He often offended with words and deeds Jesus did often confront. I don't contend that the example of Christ is one in which we just remain silent and hidden and we never get into trouble. However, I do contend that the example of Christ is one in which we often win by losing. In which we offend all because we love all and one that understands that you cannot have the glory of the resurrection without the suffering of the cross. So we have to ask ourselves, whose example am I following today? Am I following the example of culture? Or am I following the example of Christ? Number two, what story are we believing? How many of you, like me, you say, I love stories? You love stories, okay? Okay. Not very many. Okay, you should buy a book. Okay, watch a movie. All right. There are these things called books. You should read them. They're great. Um, now, I love stories. Okay, movies, books, biographies, stranger things. I haven't finished season four, so please don't, don't spoil it. I'm guessing L wins, okay? But other than that, don't tell me how. Uh, now, stories are at the heart of human existence, And if they weren't, we wouldn't be flocking to go see Maverick. We wouldn't be flocking to go see the next Marvel movie. We wouldn't be pre-ordering the upcoming books by noted historians, David McCullough and James M. McPherson and Doris Kearns Goodwin. (laughs) That's just me, huh? Okay. Like, nerd alert. Okay. But here's the problem. We have a story. It's a real one. We already know the author, but for some reason, that story has become stale to us, and we stop living as if we really believe it. In the book, Redmond states it like this, the story of what God has done has been replaced by the story of us, a tragic comedy featuring all of what we have done and have not done. We look at our own story and see nothing spectacular. Maybe Adam and Eve got a little bored with gardening and animal husbandry. Maybe they looked at God as they were walking the cool of the day with him and liked the eternality and the authority in his story better. Maybe they wanted more than the ordinary existence they had been given. Regardless, they wanted to be like God. They did not want to be found in God's story so much as to write a better one. So they fell headlong into the abyss of unbelief and hate and explicit conscious rebellion. Worse, they pulled us in by the heel I want you to listen to this part of God's story in Colossians as Paul describes the supremacy of Christ. He says this, and I would even encourage you to close your eyes and let this just wash over you. He says this in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Why would we ever want a better story than that? For the same reason that Adam and Eve took the bait, and they ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't enough for them to be supporting characters. In the greater story of God and his kingdom, they wanted to play the leading roles. And you and I, were no different. Our culture teaches us that you're the star. You're the main character. You're the hero. You're the the hero. You're the heroine. You're whatever you want to be. But it's all about you. And the Bible teaches us something drastically different. It's not about you. And that's tough. We wanna hear that. We wanna hear that we are special. And not just we're unique like a snowflake special, but like we're special meaning that like other people aren't quite as special as we are. But That's not the Bible. Guess what? We're not the hero in this story. We don't save the day. We don't come to our own rescue. We are rescued by the Savior. Author Donna Miller wrote in the book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, another book I'd commend to you, these words about how we continually strive to be the main character. He said this, I was a tree in the story of a forest. It was arrogant of me to believe any differently. The story of the forest is better than the story of the tree. Now, I love what Miller says here, and I think he's right, but I think we can take it another step further, and I think you would agree with this too. The kicker here is that it's not even a story about a forest of trees. You and I are a part of a greater story of a a creator of the forest and the trees. And it's up to us whether we believe that story and whether we believe that its author truly knows what's best for us or whether we are gonna write our own story and believe something else. Whose example are we following, and what story are we believing? And third, what are we willing to be? In a chapter of the God of the Mundane, Redman, who was a pastor at the time that that he wrote this, he said that there was something that amazed him as he reread the uh, letters from the apostles in the New Testament, and he said it was amazing that he missed it before because he had read it you know, dozens of times throughout his life. But he missed something very, very powerful. And he summarizes what he finally discovered in this passage. He says, I missed the obvious. The apostles are writing to normal people. Most of them are nameless. They are Jew and Gentile, yes, but they are also not apostles. And most are not pastors. They are carpenters, farmers, traders, sailors, fishermen, shepherds, guards, they are mothers and fathers and children. Compared to the life of an apostle, their lives are probably mundane. They are ordinary men and women believing an extraordinary story. Through our culture, and, and dare I say, even through the church, you and I have been taught and we've been trained to be obscurity adverse. We've been told that we're only as valuable as our following and even sometimes, I think we, we catch, because more is caught than taught, we catch this teaching even in the church. And I, and I don't think it's, it's meant to be, but I think we still catch it this way, that somehow we're only as significant as our generational legacy. And we equate that to mean that if books aren't written about us and statues aren't made and schools aren't named after us, then somehow we haven't lived up to the call of God on our lives. Can I just be honest and say that I believe that for the majority of my life? And guess where I learned that? I learned it in church. I was pretty much told that, hey, your reach, your impact for Jesus is however important you are. I pretty much was given this example that faithfulness to God equaled significance in the eyes of others. And I don't blame those pastors or teachers for challenging me as a young man to have an impact. You should have an impact. Some of you will be called to do great and big and significant things. Some of you might have books written about you or have a statue of you. Some of you might be called to another country. Some of you might do big and great things. But that's not our significance. Our significance is our faithfulness. Look at the words of Jesus in Matthew as he twice says the same thing. First in Matthew 10, 38 and 39, he says, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And again, Matthew 16, he repeats this by saying, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life from me will find it. Twice, Jesus gives this very counterintuitive, seemingly even this grim mandate. And he's not suggesting He's not saying, this is a path you can take. He's saying, if you want to be a part of me, if you want to be found in me, this is the road. This is my command for you. And he says that it involves carrying an instrument of execution used to kill the worst kind of criminals in the most public and humiliating of ways in this first century. And I don't I, honestly I don't even think there's a parallel for it in our age. We have to go to the first century to see just what Jesus is asking his disciples to do. He commands them to lose their life in order to find it. Let me just tell you, that will never be a hashtag. Okay, and I know we, we kind of giggle at that, and that's that's funny, but it's true. That message take up your instrument of execution. Deny yourself. Give up your life. Be obscure. Be unknown. Serve in the shadows. These are not hashtags, people. These are not trending topics. There's never going to be a TikTok challenge for who can be seen serving the least. It's not going to happen. These are not encouraging messages that are going to fill pews and build churches and build a following. You're not gonna become YouTube famous by telling everyone, hey, it really doesn't matter if you remember me at all. Because our culture teaches us something so very different and yet it's what Jesus lived out. It's the command he gives for you and I. It's the actions of the main character of the story we're written into and his actions by denying himself, by taking up the cross, by taking on our sin and our guilt and our shame was the greatest act of courage and true love the world has ever or will ever see. Now, I told you at the beginning that I'm a teacher, and I've been one for for five years now, and I know Other teachers in this room would agree that there are days and weeks and months in which teaching can feel like the epitome of mundane. You can work so hard to engage students in the act of learning and feel that you've done nothing but wasted their time and yours. There are days when you wonder if you're making any difference in the lives of these students at all. And I work with middle schoolers, so their ability to provide useful feedback And grateful appreciation is dumbfounding, (laughs) except for you, Caden. You're great. You're great, sweetheart over here. Now, one of the classes that that I teach at Newman Middle School, I teach it every spring semester, and we call it study skills. There's probably a a better name for it, but it's designed for at-risk students academically, behaviorally, uh, maybe it's a really troubled home life. They can be in there for very uh, varying reasons. And in past years, we, I've even called it scared straight uh, because of, of the clientele. Now, this past semester, I had 13 students And they were all very unique and it was almost like our own little island of misfit toys because these students, they weren't all in academic distress, they weren't all in behavioral distress, but they all were at risk for falling essentially through the cracks. And in that class, there's a student, let's call him Tyler, who, um, a little bit about him, he's never met his dad. He's 13 years old and his mother was in prison until very recently for about seven or eight years. So the majority of his life, he's been parentless. He was abused in foster homes, and then he was recently adopted by a family member. And this semester, I tried to teach Tyler and these other students things like grit, resiliency, growth mindset, self-efficacy, a belief that you can, or that if you don't know something, it's because you don't know it yet, not that you can't. And I would show movies that would try to illustrate this, things like The Pursuit of Happiness, the Chris Gardner story. And one of their favorites toward the end of the semester was a movie called Unbreakable. Anybody know it? Okay. Unbreakable is a story of a young man growing up in the 30s and 40s named Louis Zamperini. And Louis Zamperini, his parents were Italian immigrants and he was in trouble all the time as a child. And then his brother helped him discover running. And, and so he becomes this really great track star. And then the war comes, World War II, and, and he signs up and he ends up in this bombing crew and they end up crash landing in the Pacific Ocean and he and two others are the only survivors and, and they're afloat at sea for 47 days. and This is all a true story. And finally, they're found by a Japanese patrol boat and he becomes a Japanese prisoner of war for two and a half years. And it's about his struggle to stay alive. And there's this quote that his brother taught him that he says, he says, if I can take it, I can make it. And so it's about his resiliency, coming back from the war, surviving. In fact, later on, the, the, you know, after the story ends, there's, there's more to it where he ends up giving his life to Christ and uh, God sets him free from an alcohol addiction. And he began traveling with Billy Graham. It was really, really amazing. But my kids loved this story. They were just so enamored with what happened to Louis and and, and his his resiliency. And so I honed in on this. And at the end of the year, I I give away two awards uh, in every class. And so for this class, I named my award the Louis Zamperini Grit and Growth Mindset Award. And I gave one of those awards to Tyler. And a couple days went by. This is the very end of school. And I didn't hear anything from him. I was kind of waiting for him to say, you know, hey coach, which I don't like it when the kids only call me by my last name. It's kind of an old school thing, but I give him a pass and I even let him mispronounce my name. So I'm kind of waiting on him to say, hey, Mewborn, hey, thanks for my award. that meant a lot to me, but it doesn't come. And then on the very last day of class, give the semester test. we finish up, you know, say our goodbyes, have a great summer, sign yearbooks. And then class ends and everybody starts to file out except for Tyler. And I can see that he's sort of mulling around. I can tell he's waiting for something. He's waiting for everybody to leave. So everybody else files out and then he just comes up to my desk. He doesn't say a word. And he just opens his arms. And he comes in for this huge hug. He holds it there for a long time and then, and then he pulls back and there's tears in his eyes. And he comes in, and he hugs me again. And pulls back and there's just more tears. And without even saying a word, I just knew something's happened. And I told him, I said, Tyler, I said, you were dealt a really bad hand. I used a stronger word than that. I said, you were dealt a really bad hand, man. You didn't deserve it. I said, but I want you to know those are the ingredients that God is gonna use to make something beautiful out of your life. I said and I know that you got so tired of me saying, Hey, I have a growth mindset, not a fixed mindset. No, you just don't know how to do it yet. Yes, you can. I know you got so exhausted of that. But well, buddy, I believe in you so much. And I will be your biggest fan for the rest of your life. There's nothing I won't do for you and I love you. And that meant so much. And I could just tell by the look in, his, look in his eyes. He didn't even have words for him. he's 13. I don't expect him to give this eloquent gratitude. But something happened that day. Tyler's life was clearly impacted by daily, unglamorous, unappreciated, mundane faithfulness. Even when I was convinced, I don't even think these kids like me. Some of them might even hate me and they're so tired of this, and nothing's happening. But something clearly happened. God clearly used me in that classroom to touch, even if it's just Tyler's life. And that's that's awesome that that happened. But that's not the point this morning. The bigger point is this. Would God's presence through me in that classroom been any different or any less if Tyler never said a word, if I never knew, if he never gave me that tearful hug, if he never showed appreciation, if I never saw him again. Absolutely not. God's presence, God's impact, God's difference in that young man's life would have been the exact same, even if I had never known about it. We will never know the difference that we have made in this world, but that's not the point. I borrow from Redmond one last time this morning. He says this, are you willing to be numbered among the nameless believers in history who lived in obscurity? Do you have the courage to be forgotten by everyone but God and the heavenly host? Are you willing to be found only by God as faithful? right where you are? Are you willing to have no one write a book about you and what you did in the name of Christ? Are you willing to live and believe in stark contrast to the world around you that there is a God of the mundane? Won't you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Father, I thank you this morning for stay-at-home moms and dads. I thank you, God, for teachers, and plumbers, and baristas, and accountants, and bank tellers, and policemen, and firemen, and paramedics. I thank you, God, for contractors, for for roofers, for framers, for those that do drywall so that we can have homes. I thank you, God, for the people who work at gas stations, supermarkets, department stores, God, their everyday faithfulness matters. And they haven't missed a call to something bigger because what they're doing may not seem significant. And I pray, God, that everyone here this morning would be set free from this false belief that faithfulness is significance, only if we see it. But may we know that significance is faithfulness, whether it's seen or not. And I encourage you to prepare your communion elements. Here at City Church, we practice open communion. If you want more of Jesus, you're welcome to participate. You certainly do not have to. do not feel any pressure. But as we hold this cracker, This wafer and and this cup of juice before us were reminded of this message of Jesus that that I've been preaching about these last few minutes. When Jesus came to the table and he said, this is my body, as he passed around the loaf, and he said, it's gonna be broken for you. He knew full well that he didn't deserve what was going to happen to him. He knew full well that he deserved better. He knew full well that it was the other 11 at that table, or 12 if we count before Judas left. He knew it was your bodies who should be broken. It's your blood who should be spilled, but I'm going to step in. I'm going to do something you don't deserve. And later when Jesus is, is betrayed and he's brought before the chief priests and Herod and and, and Pilate, there's a scene when when Pilate brings out Jesus and a man named Barabbas, this criminal. He was an insurrectionist. He he deserves to be on death row. And and he tells the Jewish people, he says, I have a custom where I release a prisoner and I'll let you choose. Because he's trying to to get rid of Jesus without making the Jews mad. And, And he says, which one do you want? And they said, give us Barabbas. So he Washes his hands and, and he says, here's, "Here's Barabbas. What do you want me to do with Jesus? Is crucify him?" We don't think about this story a lot, but don't you know that Jesus was there saying, "Yes, you can have him. Go be free. I will let God treat me like Barabbas, so that God can treat Barabbas like me." It's you and I this morning. We are getting treated like the son of man who was faultless, innocent, blameless. We get to escape the punishment. We get to escape the cross. We get to be treated like Jesus because Jesus said, I'll be treated like you. So as we take the body this morning, let us remember that he did this knowing full well that he didn't deserve it that it was us who deserved it but we get to participate in him because of this act of grace let us take the body together today and as we take the cup which represents his blood shed for you i just encourage you if you are far from god or you believe somehow that I've done too much, I've gone too far to just remember that no matter what you've done, you are underestimating the power of the blood and you can say, no, no, you, you don't understand what I've done, no, no you don't understand the power of the blood because there is no stain, there's no sin there is no shame that is any match for the blood of Christ and whether it's with someone after service or in your own heart, I encourage you to reach out and say, Jesus, I receive your forgiveness today. Let us take the cup together. Won't you take just a few moments to just reflect upon this meal, to reflect upon the Lord's Supper and what he's done for you. Amen. Well at this time if um Uh, If we have elders or or our prayer team in the room, I'd encourage you to go ahead and come forward. Before we leave today, if there's anything that you would like to have someone pray with you about, I encourage you just to stop by and let these uh, prayer team members and elders just just pray with you real quick. And then don't forget, after service, if you are new or you haven't gotten a chance to um, receive a free gift just for visiting us, we'd love for you to stop by the welcome area. Pastor Matt and his wife, Lindsay, are gonna be out there. Don't forget Tonight is our baptism bash. Um, There may or may not be belly flops going on from someone currently wearing, what is this, peach? I don't know. So be there at Camp Law Ridge, Lock Ridge, Lachow Ridge, I don't know how to say it, but be there. It's going to be amazing. And then don't forget after service, we've got like bottled sodas. So stick around, uh, have fun, and let's go ahead and stand up and let's say our mission statement and go live it out wherever you are. We love you guys. Be blessed.